Well, welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of Right Down the Street. I'm Brian Barnett, the mayor of the city of Rochester Hills, and as always, your host for this podcast. We always want to start by thanking our regular listeners who tune in each and every episode. As you know, Right Down the Street celebrates the stories and the perspectives the backgrounds and the impact of the people living and working right down the street in our community. Now, as you know, we've talked to some incredible people, a a great variety of people who have a deep connection to Rochester Hills, but today we are going to dive deep, deep into the history of our community. And today's guests are some of the best we could possibly find to talk a little bit about really how we started and really where our roots are. You can't talk about history in Rochester Hills without saying at least one name currently, and that's Pat McKay. Pat McKay is synonymous with the Rochester Hills Van Heusen Museum. He is the go-to history buff in our community, an all-around great guy, longtime city employee. Pat McKay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mayor. It's an honor to be here, and we love talking about the history of the community. It's just we have a remarkable community to talk about the you know history stories, and and uh, every day we seem to uncover another one because um, we have we're, we're unique as opposed to everybody else in Southeast Michigan. We look forward to sharing that. Well, and now you may, uh, if you have uh, lived in this community for any amount of time, met Pat McKay or been to the museum. You probably haven't met our next guest. Her name is Lauren Sinicola, and instead of me introducing her. Pat, you met Lauren in a very unique way. Why don't you talk about uh, how you first met and and introduce her to uh, to right down the street? Yeah, Lauren is a, a local resident here. She lived right down the street from the museum and has lived there almost her entire life. Um, she would walk down when she was just a little girl, knock on the door, and was, for some reason at four o'clock every day, she was looking for candy sticks from the museum gift shop. So I would get the knocks on the doors and we would let the, her and her all of her little girlfriends uh, shop. And by the time she was 16, we were saying, Lauren, why don't you just join the staff? And so we hired her as a seasonal employee. And because she lived so close, she was available year round. And and we always worked around her school schedule and we saw her grow up and go to college. And and uh, we hung on to her as long as we possibly could. And, and, and then we thought, like many you know seasonal employees, they'd grow up and they'd move on. But Lauren came right back home and she's still here and lives in Stony Creek Village right down the street where she started. Yeah. Lauren, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we will give you uh, an uh, adequate time to tell a Pat McKay story. So uh, I've got a lot. So don't worry about that. (laughs) You know, one of the things uh, and the reason that we want to really celebrate this and talk a little bit about this this month is that the city uh, is really or this region is celebrating a pretty remarkable event, the 200th anniversary of Stony Creek Village. Uh, Stony Creek Village is, of course, located in the city of Rochester Hills, off of Tinkin Road, kind of between Rochester and DeQuinder. And the village was born when a family of about 60 men and women and children traveled from New York State to this, at the time, undeveloped area on the banks of the Stony Creek River back in 1823. Pat, take us back to what this, uh, what was here? What what did this place look like in 1823? Country was only 47 years old. Uh, James Monroe was the president. Talk about what you'd see and why they stopped here to really start their life. Yeah, I think Stony Creek Village has a remarkable story because we want to think in Rochester Hills that everything is new. You know, we look at all the new buildings and new roads and new bridges. 
and yet it's it's very very old. Um, in 1823, um, most of the you know, pioneers who were who would have been living on the East Coast were looking for opportunities. You know, they they want they wanted to be innovative. We use that word a lot, but they they want the same thing in 1823, and they were looking for a place to expand, to expand their families, expand their expand their land holdings, and Michigan opened up, and and it opened up because transportation, the Erie Canal spilled people from upstate New York into the Great Lakes. And, and then from there, they, they were able to access our rivers. And you know, the Clinton River really is the lifeblood of, of uh, Southeast Michigan because it allowed people to start traveling inland. And what they were always looking for was water power and moving water. That's what turned gears and, and ran mills. And so when they were coming here, this was a wilderness area. It was dangerous. It was um, scary. I mean, they were still dealing with um, issues with Native Americans. You know, not every treaty uh, was being enforced. And so it was, a, it was a very scary time. And yet, I think families saw the opportunities they had that they could come here and live that American dream. And it came right here to Southeast Michigan. And uh, it is the oldest settlement in, in Oakland County, correct? Uh, it's the second oldest. It's right after, you know, Rochester was settled 1817. And I think probably because you had, you know, which which at that time probably had six log cabins. That's what means settled. I mean, it was very, very, very small. And these are, of course, we're talking about European Americans. You know, there were Native Americans that had been here for thousands sure. of years. But we're talking about the Europeans, uh, you know, who were, who were moving here from upstate New York. And, um, you know, and Pontiac is in there too. Pontiac is a couple years after um, after Rochester. But um, people are coming here because they they probably knew people in Rochester. They were coming from the same area. So sure. they weren't moving here hoping that everything would just fall into place. They, they, they had sent scouts out from their family ahead of time who would check the land out, had to make sure it was fertile, had to make sure that there was water nearby, had to make sure it was not all swampland. And um, and so they it was all very calculated. And you see what the, the strength of a family is. I mean, they came here because family was was here already. And so they were just following along and and um, hoping that everything was going to work out. And they went on a lot of blind faith. Sure. And those 60 families built a, a series of long log cabins uh, uh, kind of established mostly by the Taylor clan. Uh, came looking for a better life, as you said. What what were the jobs that they? I mean, obviously, it's probably pretty agrarian to start, but very then- agrarian. Every, everybody was a farmer. I mean, because they, you know, there was no Myers or Costco, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Wait, what? No, none of those. Hard <laughs> to believe. But so everything. You no, know, they had to rely on themselves for everything. Every meal, every single day. And, and, and that's one thing to think about. And you now, in, in the summertime, it's another whole story. In, in February, you know, in the middle of the winter time. So, so, so the jobs they had mostly revol- revolved around these water powered mills. So I always say it's the three things they worried about every morning is the same th- three things I worry about, food, clothing, shelter. Uh-huh. And so so people were running these mills and they were woolen mills, they were sawmills, they were grist mills. And so farmers were sending it to a to a mill owner who could grind the grain. And there was a man ran the post the post office. There was a teacher. There was a deacon in the church. There were blacksmiths. There, you know, somebody ran the hotel. Um, and so there, sure. there, all of a sudden, you saw this economy that started growing up. Agriculture was the basis, but everything kind of spurred off of it. And it was just fascinating to watch how quickly it all came together and made this a very productive community. Yeah. And now, listen, fast forward, and we're going to probably go back and forward in history here, but fast forward uh, uh, 150 years or so, and, and Lauren, your family, uh, decides to uh, to locate in the Stony Creek Village. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How long your family's been here, and and what was it like growing up in in Stony Creek Village? Kind of a very unique place. It is a very unique place. Um, I think it's honestly the best place on earth. Yeah. Some people might say Disneyland, but I think Stony Creek Village. So we ended up um, moving here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
almost, well, 31 years ago, going on 32 years, my dad had been transferred um, to the Detroit area. So, um, you know, my my parents had to go house hunting. And of course, I'm retelling a story I've heard many times over the years because I was seven. Uh, But both of my parents argue that they were the one to find their house in Stony Creek Village. They had to do some house hunting um, separate, you know, from from one another because my dad was working some crazy hours. And they found this cute little house in Stony Creek Village, unlike anything that, you know, they had seen in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, yeah, we've been here for um, over 30 years. And I grew up in the village and went away to Michigan State University and then spent a little bit of time in Philadelphia after I got married. And my husband and I moved back here. He was um, in active duty in the the United States Coast Guard for almost 10 years. Mm. And um, we were out in Philly and then we got transferred back here to Detroit. So similar to, you know, my dad kind of running parallel uh, with my parents. And we were living still in in Rochester Hills, just over um, off of Livernois. And we were kind of looking to really settle our roots somewhere. And I thought, well, what better place than Stony Creek Village? There was no house for sale. So we got creative and uh, there was one, one home in the village that had kind of been vacant for 25 years. No joke. Mm. Um, Nobody had lived in it. It had changed hands many times. And long story short, we ended up with that property and we now live directly behind my parents in the village. And what is the history of the house that you grew up in? When was it built? Oh, probably a year before Michigan became a state. So probably 1836. Okay. Yeah. And the house you have now is similarly uh, probably 1850. <laughs> so it's a, it's an so old it's a house. brand new house. Yeah. 18, yeah. as opposed to the 1830s, sure. the 1850s. <laughs> lots of new amenities, I'm sure. From but the- your house <laughs> that you grew up and tell tell us about. So, yeah, you know what? I always felt like I was famous when I was a kid because growing up and and attending the Rochester Community Schools, we all got to go and visit the one-room schoolhouse. And when we were there, we would go and visit the museum and they would talk about Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen. And she was born in my parents' house. In fact, Uh um, in my what was my sister's old bedroom. So I always kind of felt, you know, like... We lived in a famous place, and it is—it's famous for our area. Yeah, no, that, I mean that's a, a founding mother of this community. Uh, really, the the um, uh, Bertha and, and Sarah are, as you know, uh, and and those anybody who spent more than ten minutes with Pat knows those are probably the. You know, if we were to have a Mount Rushmore, those would be two of the four faces that would be on our community's Mount Rushmore, yep. born in your sister's bedroom. Right, it's oh, impressive. Yeah. Um, Pat, the, the, the line of descendants from that uh, era, that first group that moved here in the 1820s, uh, it does uh, go to Sarah, uh, who married Josh Van Heusen, and then they came here in 36, and, 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 and it goes on. I'm telling a little bit of your story, but how do we get from that first group to the very famous Van Heusens, of which the, Van, the, the, the museum's named after, uh, the school, so much of our community has their name attached. Talk sure, to yep. us to get to, to, yep, to the them. Taylor family was very successful, and, and they were successful enough that other families moved into town. You know, they they were, it was a stable community, and uh, the, you know, the things like the church and the post office and the hotel and the stagecoach line were all coming through the village. So all of a sudden, it was a thriving community. So the Van Hoosens were one of those families that moved into town. They had connections with the Taylors. They had known each other in New York. And um, and it just so happened, you know, as the love story took place, Joshua Van Hoosen was the same age as Sarah Taylor. And they went to school at the little one-room schoolhouse. So that's uh, an important part. It's an 
I know we were that 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 love affair started. That classic in, early American love story. Classic right? all American. And Joshua <laughs> left. You know, like everyone, he grew up. By the time he was a teenager, you know, gold was discovered in California, and you, you know, you had the chance to either work on a farm and, and work eighteen hours a day, or you could go to California with the chance to strike it rich. And so he did. He left and went to California for three years. But this correspondence was kept up with Sarah. And, and the one that, you know, the, the piece of correspondence that I like the most is that he wrote a letter home saying, I'll come home if you'll marry me. And her response back was, I haven't found anyone else yet. And he <laughs> took that as a yes and, uh, and hurried home. And uh, they were married in the house that Lauren lives in today. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Look at that. Whoa. Look yeah. at that. Learn something so on, new every day. On January 1st, and that wedding gift he gave to his wife is on and on one of our pieces of furniture that's still on display really? in the van who's in farmhouse in January 1st, 1854. So it's a remarkable story. Yeah. Now, they, those, um, and, and having studied it a little bit just in my role, um, the role that they, their family have gone on to play, just pioneers in, in, in medicine and in animal husbandry and, and all the things that have uh, have their mark in the American Medical Women's Association. She was the founding member. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just so many uh, tremendous ways in which they brought our community to the forefront. Um, and it's always fun to talk about how women have really been the folks that have led our community uh, from maybe a small, quiet, you know, little creek, you know, creekside village to uh, national prominence. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pat, you've told some of those stories before as well. I have, you know, and, and, and the lessons learned, you know, when, when you study their lives are still relevant to today. And I think that's that's what draws me to the story so much. You know, Bertha Van Hoosen is, is one of many women that we can talk about at the, in, in this family. But, um, you know, she struggled with a, a career in, in medicine at a time when women were not accepted into this. But she insisted not only that she would be a, you know, a doctor, she'd be the very best doctor. And, and she would always mentor the next generation. That was a big part of her life. And I, I love that part of the story. And at some point, as other women studied under her, as she had started breaking down some barriers, she then traveled the world to go and meet her students and make sure they had the current medical techniques and the current medical information and new instruments. And, and she was making sure they understood germ theory and washing hands and wearing a mask and, and you know, new ways of suturing. And, and so she was always making sure that next generation, that she was giving, giving back sure. uh, to the whole profession. Yeah. And, um, and and it was just so challenging. Every time you, you hear about another obstacle, I keep saying, oh, she should have just given up. I never would have gone beyond that. And Bertha persevered through it all. Yeah. And and always with, kind of with a smile on her face and, and with more determination and grit. And I think those are those are important lessons for us to see when, when we all face our own personal challenges. She overcame those. And when you study people who can overcome those obstacles, you start realizing you're that person too and you can do it. Well, if you could drop people uh, on which to found a community, that type of spirit, um, not just there to make money and and grab title and land and 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 create an empire, but to serve and to advance in and to knock down barriers is really exceptional. Again, my name is Brian Burnett, the mayor of the city of Rochester, Michigan. We're talking history today with Pat McKay and Lauren Sinicola about the Stony Creek Village here in 2023, 200 years later, after the first folks wandered into uh, the valley. And, and uh, Lauren, you know, as you as a, a, a young girl were wandering around your your uh, your new home coming from another state and this kind of very unique um gathering if people aren't familiar with it there's how many structures in the it's probably 19 yeah, nineteen twenty. there's an old you know the old bar is still there and the you know the one room schoolhouse any favorite spots growing up as a little girl uh in the historic district that uh you know are i mean 
you know, I guess there might not be secrets anymore if you share them on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> any fun little secret spots there that uh, were memorable? Yeah, you know what? I I just, I still love um, the museum. It's grounds. And uh, I used to run away when I would when I would get upset, you know, with my parents. I Something wasn't going my way. I would run away just down the street, right, you know, to the museum uh, like they didn't know where I was. And then I would get hungry or something and go home. But actually, <laughs> the field where the dairy barn is, um, that's where I met my husband. And, you know, you, you're talking about how old things become new again. Uh, my husband and I met when we were in middle school. And so we, you know, kind of grew up together and, uh, you know, it, I married him not because I didn't have a better offer. <laughs> um, just in case he's listening. Just right. in case he's listening. Yeah. So uh, really just the museum grounds, but that field over there where they, the Grangers play their, their baseball games, we were playing flashlight tag and that's where I met him. And, you know, so it'll always hold a special so place. I mean, to be fair, you did meet him in bad lighting, it sounds like. <laughs> I did. <but> <laughs> Pat, how about you? Do you have a, uh, a favorite? I mean, it's probably it's like having a favorite kid, right? Yeah, I know it's you, really hard. You it's... have four, and I know you have four. But uh, Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been there for 30 years, and um, I think different seasons and different times of the day, I have different places. You know, I love watching the sunset over the Van Husen Farmhouse every night. It seems like so many times I'm just driving home as I'm watching the sunset down below. But I'm fascinated with the two things that I, the two buildings that I really think were significant to the, that Taylor Van Husen clan. One was the schoolhouse. They, you realize how important education was. And, you know, and whenever people get upset and they, you know, I'm hearing them complain about, you know, whether it's a, an educational controversy or a millage that needs to be passed. I said, we we talk about those and we complain and we argue because it's so important. If we didn't care about it, we would just sweep it aside and never we ignored the situation. And it's just the opposite. Education has been so important. And I think about how hard as they're trying to build houses and they're trying to build barns and water powered mills, they also built a schoolhouse. That was the very first thing. And then right next to it in the village, there's a lot that's been empty since the 1850s. And that was the church. And you realize how important faith was to them. They came here, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the religious persecution that you hear the first settlers and on the 13 original colonies, but they came here and the, the very first thing they did was they they established a faith community. And mm -hmm. it was the Baptist church that has evolved throughout our community. And today is the Rochester Hills Baptist Church on Orion Road. It's the same congregation that started in the 1820s. And the, and the Taylor family came with 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 ministers in their family, and it was a Baptist church, and uh, I, I just realized how important those lots are to us, and and I think we're honored in our community that you know the school system kind of owned and operated those for a long time, and then they they passed the torch. It was ten years ago, and now we get to be the ones that protect those yeah. sites and and make sure we're still talking about how important faith and education still are in our community today. Having two students that have gone through the Rochester Community Schools uh, program. Uh, one of the most memorable things of their, you know, 12 years spent in the in, in Rochester Community Schools is that day that they dress in period clothing and go to the one-room schoolhouse and experience school and education as it was 150 years ago. Uh, and you can still find a few people in this community, Pat. I know you who they are. You know who they are. That went to school in that one-room schoolhouse that are still engaged. And and I was in, the, in that little schoolhouse uh, not too long ago, and you pull – the map down off the wall and there's some some countries that don't exist anymore and some areas in the country that were you know territories and and now are states and uh it's just incredible you're right the 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 emphasis that this community has always put uh on education is a, a defining characteristic and one of the things that uh, i think makes us special you know lauren you have four children right yes shoot us their ages real quick uh, nine six two and 
Six weeks. Six weeks. Yes. Wow. Well, good thing we didn't do this podcast six weeks ago. <laughs> I don't know what you would have we, gotten. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is, I mean, do your children realize the very special place in which they're growing up? Are they experiencing it the same way you are? I mean, this is an age of iPads and cell phones and, you know, internet connectivity. Um, do they still engage in the community the way you did when you were a little girl? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I try to get them out and about. Of course, there's always that struggle with the, you know, uh, age of the internet and um, what have you. But yeah, you know, growing up, we were, we would run around the neighborhood. We would go and play with our neighbors. There, there wasn't a, a worry. My kids get to still do that. We have lots of, you know, younger families um, that are now in the neighborhood. And I think that at least my my eldest, our nine year old, she is beginning to understand the significance. Um, her Girl Scout troop went to the museum for Arbor Day, and they got to help plant the new tree that that um, replaced the uh, the black, black walnut, walnut tree. Yeah, and you know, so um, her her name's Mina. Mina was very excited. Was was excited to show her friends that this is her neighborhood, and you know, she has a bit of a connection to. Bertha Van Hoosen um, and and things like that. So yeah, I think that there is you know a parallel there as well with how I grew up. Right. And and you feel you know and maybe the 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 kids don't yet, but do you and your husband feel like kind of a sense of like you know just carrying on this legacy of of uh, you know these kind of these original settlers and and that um, you know sort of unique way you're living history currently. Yeah, you know what I think that the the most common connection or thread would be the sense of community. We're trying to raise our children to be able to rely on, you know, their next door neighbor, lend a helping hand if if somebody needs it. And also, you know, if if they need some help to ask for it. And we are blessed to live in a neighborhood um, full of people who can do that and full of resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I yeah. I think so, so I'm not very handy. I've just been thinking about this. You have a house that's 150 years old or however old it is. What is the best part of living in an old house and the worst part of living in an old house? Oh, goodness. Um, Are you and your husband handy? My husband is and my and my dad. So we're very lucky that we live, you know, really a stone's throw away from one another. Uh, so we don't really have to pick up the phone too often to call a handyman um, or an electrician. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it has its challenges. Our house was is basically, um, you know, old become new because we renovated it. And um, I don't know, it's it's. Yeah, they really, they saved the house. I mean, the house had been vacant for many years and we were scared to death because the, the whole village is on the National Register of Historic Places and we were watching this house decay, you know, or, around us. And it was in all kinds of litigation and we kept saying, we need a hero. And that's what, over and over we said, we need that one person just to come and we don't know who that person is. And we didn't realize the person lived right down the street. It was Lauren and, and her her parents. And gotta, so and they keep, saved keep the house. plugging the right down the street. Yeah, that's right. It's really yeah. well done. And it was, really and we, well had, done. we had no idea that. And, and, and we needed somebody who who got it, who understand the value because it was a monumental effort. They put a basement under it that it didn't have a basement. And so the house was jacked up and and there was just so many 
challenges that went on. And I think the funny story about Lauren's father is that we always refer to the house under a different name. It was another family. And at some point he said, why can't we name it after me now? Because <laughs> he had done so much work. He, wore, he toiled on it. And you know, the city has a historic districts commission, which helps regulate the exterior of houses. So he was trying to meet all their requirements while also you know, running to Home Depot 300 times a day trying to do it. So, so really Lauren and her family, you know, her husband, her four kids and her parents, really are the heroes in Stony Creek Village for saving that house. Well, and, it, and, it, uh, and having been mayor for a long time and seeing these different situations pop up where you have older homes, you do have to find a hero. But it's great to hear that you're a modern family with four young kids living in a 150-year-old house. And it sounds like you love it. It sounds like you you wouldn't change anything. And, and you found, I mean, most people think of Rochester Hills, they think of kind of the traditional big neighborhoods and you know, nice schools and big yards and so forth. But you have found a really cool niche in our community that probably a lot of people don't even know about. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 30 plus years ago, you know, it was a lot more country around here. Um, but I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade it for anything. This is where we wanted to be and we made it happen. Pat, this is an impossible question. But given that you are the history guru, if there was one story to share with people that kind of defines this community uh, from a, either a person or an event or uh, an incident, whatever, what would you say it would be? Well, for me, it was um, long ago we had a family, the Eberline family, and the Eberline family had rented their house from the Van Hoosens, and, and they were part of that last generation that was part of the Michigan State University, owning most of the village at one point. And, and at some point, they became quite elderly, and they weren't able to maintain their yard. And Mary Everline had the most beautiful gardens in the village. And so that year when she kind of announced that she wasn't going to take care of her gardens, you know, 35 people showed up and planted her gardens for that year and took care of them for her. And it was just that. And I think I know I know some of Lauren's um, neighbors. And, and, you know, I talked about that mentoring um, opportunities we've had. The next door neighbors have been mentoring, you know, Mr. Everlove and all kinds of just super people here. But when somebody, there was a need in the community, they all came together and they joke about being the village people. And, you know, but I think at some point there's book clubs and investment clubs and they, it's a really neat little tight neighborhood. Um, and I know for me, working at the museum, they're my security system. I, I know if something's if there's something going on and they're not comfortable with kids on the property or anything, um, you know, I give them my cell phone, but they say, I say, call 911. And so I, our, our, our issues at the museum are addressed by the neighbors long before I, I find out. They, they watch over the museum and they watch over each other. So that's well, what I love about you, it. You know, the uh, it takes a village uh, uh, mantra has been lived out, uh, sounds like daily, for 200 years <laughs> in the Stony Creek Village um, by you, by your family, by the families that had lived in your house all the way back to the Van Heusens and farther back to the Taylors. We're certainly glad that, uh, you know, that the those sorts of people with the values and morals and work ethic that uh, found our community and began to flourish here. Uh, it's great. It's a it's a history we can be proud of. And there's not, you know, not every place can be proud of their history or proud of the people that founded them here uh, it's perhaps most evident in the, and it sounds like in the energy that still exists in this very cool community of 20 homes uh, that uh, that make up uh, uh, the core of our community for the past 200 years. Absolutely. Well, listen, we have one last question that we ask everybody that appears on the podcast, and uh, you have no prep for this, so this is a, a gut answer. But I'm gonna start with Pat first because he's probably a little bit more used to being on the spot. If you could have, it's a two-parter. Lunch or dinner with any person, 
alive or past, uh, who would it be? And as important, where would you take them or what would you have? Yeah, well, um, you know, there's there's so many answers on this one, I, I think. And I have listened to your podcast, so I, I'm a little bit prepared for it. But I I think mine would be a, it would be a picnic and it would be with that 60 members of the Taylor family. And we'd be having a picnic in the grove of trees down where our gazebo is. And I'd want to hear the I want to hear the rest of the stories, the stories that we don't have recorded, the things that weren't written down. And we don't have the diaries and we don't have all the journal entries. And I want to I want to hear, you know, what it took for them to come to, to our community and why they located here, because there's certainly many creeks and rivers throughout southeast Michigan. But they 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 created this community that we call Rochester Hills today. And I I would love to have the biggest barbecue ever. Um, I don't know, catered a couple by sides of beef, maybe. Yeah, maybe a side of beef. I don't know. Well, we'll have them come down. But, you know, I would do it with 60 people in, in the side yard. And I'd, I'd like to meet this family that I've been talking about for 35 years. Yeah. And you know what? I bet just as much they'd love to meet you, knowing your passion and history for telling their story. That would be one I would love to sit on the sidelines of and just uh, watch that interaction. The danger, Lauren, of letting Pat go first is that he comes <laughs> up with great answers like that. But same question to you. If you could have lunch or dinner with any individual, uh, who would it be and where would you have it? You know what? Yeah, it is. It's always uh, hard to follow Pat McKay, <laughs> but uh, I would pick my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. Um, she is passed and I would go to her house and sit at her table. Um, she passed away when I was 18. So I was, you know, a little bit older. I wasn't um, a young kid, but I still hadn't lived really. And, you know, I would like to sit down and have a conversation with her now as an adult. Um, my kids are so lucky because they are growing up right behind my parents. So they get to see them almost daily. Uh, we didn't because we, we moved here, you know, and so I got to see my grandparents a few times a year. But I would like to, you know, sit down with her over a great meal that she would cook. So she's not, you know, just because she's coming back here, she's not going to get off with not cooking. <laughs> um, and, you know, just kind of talk about how everything has gone and and learn more from her. I wish I would have asked more questions, uh, you know. So. Yeah, well, that's always the case. You know, what what a, what an interesting conversation. Thank you both for being here. Uh, it takes a village. Uh, and for 200 years, um, you've been living in it and you've been telling the story and it's created who we are as a community. And it's, uh, always, uh, it's always rewarding for me to, to pause for a few minutes and think about the folks that allowed us to celebrate all the things that we're celebrating and, and the things that we enjoy here. Uh, certainly, certainly the, the, the hard work of a lot of people in the past, and you've helped bring those stories to light. Thank you both. Uh, and it sounds like, Pat, we've been innovative for 200 years as we well. Been, absolutely. Um, pretty, yeah. pretty cool stories of the folks that have yeah. started this community. Yeah, I think each generation has kind of handed that innovation to the next generation. So now that's our responsibilities. I don't want to let them down. You know, I don't want everybody in the past. I'm, I want to take it forward and right. I want to find the Lauren Fischetti's to kind of keep this going into the future. Yeah. Well, this episode is now history. Thank you both for uh, for being here. Thanks for sharing your insights and uh, uh, keeping the vibrancy almost on your own with four kids, keeping the vibrancy of the, uh, of the Stony Creek Historic Village going. Thank you for being here, Lauren and Pat. Appreciate you both and uh, sharing your perspective on some of the cool things that are happening, at least historically, right down the street in our cool little village, celebrating its 200th anniversary this year. And for those of you joining us in the audience, thank you for listening and learning with us from the people who live and work with you and me right down the street. Until next time, so long and God bless.